good companies will raise money. That will not be a problem. And whenever entrepreneurs ask me, what do I need to do to go raise money? I always say, go run your business, go execute, <laughs> go produce stuff. Make yeah. something that people can see and touch and feel and use. Go do that and then investors will have something to invest in. Hello and welcome to Funded, sponsored by Pixel Recess. Season one is focused on Atlanta and we're talking to venture capital firms, founders, about the practical aspects of closing a deal. What made the company attractive, what we can learn from the deal, what we can replicate and what we can't. Today, we're going to focus on corporate venture capital, talking to Mike Mahan at Stanley Ventures. He'll give us an overview of what makes corporate venture capital different, the kinds of things that he finds attractive in founders. This is an important discussion, so I hope you enjoy it. I'm Mike Mahan, Managing Director at Stanley Ventures, which is the corporate venture capital arm of Stanley Black & Decker. Uh, I come from the startup world, spent about a decade there. Um, over a couple different startups, and I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of the startup world. I've been at Stanley for almost five years now, and I was part of the uh, founding team of Stanley Ventures. Talk about, from your perspective, the contrast among traditional VC, the corporate venture capital world in general, and then how Stanley fits into the context of both of those. Sure. So uh, the traditional venture capitalist, I, I look at it as really someone who is looking to buy low and sell high. They have raised funds from LPs, and these are usually high net worth individuals or institutions, pension funds, people like that, give their money to these venture capitalists and expect them to invest it and then give them more money back down the road, usually somewhere between you know seven to 10 years. And that's truly their incentive. Strategic investors are really about finding alignment between the innovation that entrepreneurs have created and corporate slash commercial goals within their organization. And so they'll invest into innovation that lines up with those goals and can help further those goals within the enterprise. So Stanley, I would say we are very much in the strategic quadrant of the whole thing. We look very strategic in the sense of commercial alignment because our mandate at Stanley Ventures is to grow a startup's top line and Stanley's top line at the same time, leveraging the strengths of Stanley and the startup to really launch innovative products that our customers have come to expect from us. Stanley's a big company. When you hear about large corporate venture capital, is that one side of a spectrum where there's other different kinds of investments that other folks tend to focus on? Yes. What I've seen is very solid mix where there are corporate VCs who literally just invest for financial gain. Hmm. And that is a strategy, but it, I don't see it tying back to anything within the corporation and what I've seen is those types of corporate VCs oftentimes lose the backing of sponsors within mm -hmm. the C-suite and the board very quickly because once you have a couple that don't work out, it's like, hey, what are we doing here? There's others that are looking to invest to acquire, and that's a different strategy too. And, and you know, I think there's kind of mixed results there, mm -hmm. and startups will always ask us, hey, are you a potential exit for us? 
Is that why you're investing into us? Right. And my answer is always, don't look at us as a path to acquisition. Look at us as a path to grow the value of your company. However your exit takes place is how it takes place. And so you've got corporate VCs that do that and with mixed results, I would say. Right. I think the more that they align with larger enterprise goals, again, goals of the C-suite and the board and make investments to help achieve those goals, the better that they perform and, and the more sponsorship they maintain down the road. And then, that exit focus advice, is that advice you would give to everybody looking for, for, for investment capital? I would because especially within large corporations, people move around a lot within the enterprise. And to try and take on a strategic investor with the thought of this is my exit, whereas you're really just starting your relationship, mm-hmm. you don't know how that's going to go. And you don't know if your champion within that organization is even going to be there in a year or two or five. And they probably five. won't. <laughs> it probably yeah. will not be. They may be in the organization, but they could be in right. a totally different vertical or, or business unit. Then your path to acquisition is going to change drastically. So. so where did you come from? Where did you grow up and what were you thinking you were going to do and going to be? And what's your history a little bit? I grew up in Marietta, Georgia. I lived in the same house for 18 years. Mm-hmm. I played baseball and, and went and played baseball in college up in, in New England. So is and, that what you were uh, going to do? You're going to yeah. be a baseball player? I, I always knew that I, I played first base and I wasn't 6'5 and oh, didn't yeah. hit, you know, 100 homers a year. So I, I knew uh, my time was limited on the field. I was good at math. I loved econ and that's what I studied in school. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. I did some consulting work after school and Mm -hmm. and really just to get a lot of experience in a lot of different areas and a lot of different industries and just try and learn about what was out there, what kind of opportunities there were, what it's like to work in a small business, what it's like to work for a large corporation. So in, in my consulting work, I got to see all of that. But all the while just saying, hey, I'm not really sure what I want to do. I know what I'm good at. I'm good at economics. I'm good at investing. I love the markets. I love following companies and understanding how valuations are made, what are drivers for growth, how to look at the global macroeconomic situation and try and find companies that can benefit from that in some way, shape or form, and also understand the companies that are not going to benefit from it and maybe you need to avoid. I've always enjoyed that. I really did a lot of that while I was working at, at startup companies. Mm-hmm. And so all those things together is what got me into the thought process of, hey, I've got great experience in the startup space. I've got a lot of passion in the investment space. And venture capital is actually a great cross-section of those things together. Did you decide that before you had an opportunity to do it? Or did you decide that as an opportunity appeared? I will say that right around the decade mark in the startup space, I started to get a little burned out. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work being in a startup. That's part of being oh, yeah. a startup. You're basically committing to be on the clock all the time. And that has a lot of benefits down the road, but it's a lot of work in return for hopefully a, a large exit or, or some kind of liquidation event. After doing that for 10 years, it was kind of time to move on. So I started looking at what should I do? What can I do to take everything that I've done, all my experience and what I love 
and what's the right place for me to land? It was serendipitous because it was right at that time when Stanley Blackenbecker was creating their corporate venture team. It really just happened to line up. You know, they always say it's better to be lucky than good. (laughs) And in this particular case, I was lucky because at this time of my life and at this time at Stanley Blackenbecker, things just happened to line up. Lots and lots of people sort of feel like venture capital is a sexy industry and want to figure out how they get into it. And yet it's relatively closed and not that easy to break into. So what of that moment can somebody else learn from or do or focus on? Yeah, it's it's a good question. For me, I was joining a team that was being stood up by a, a, a serial entrepreneur. So our VP, his name's Larry Harper. He's had multiple exits. His last exit was to Stanley Black and Decker. Mm. So he was looking for a lieutenant to, to learn under him and, and help with creating a lot of the processes and things like that kind of go into creating a startup, but also starting a small team at a large business. I wasn't coming in as a seasoned venture capital profession, and that's not really what they were looking for. My skill sets and the time in my career just happened to line up with that opportunity. Also, it was in Atlanta. I was actually living in Nashville at the time, which I love Nashville. Shout out to Nashville if anyone's listening, but my family's back in Atlanta and we were looking to come back home. And so again, just a a lot of things lining up here. But at the end of the day, I I will say that understanding the type of position that's being offered and whether that's within your skill set and your interest area, that matters. I wasn't trying to overplay my hand I wanted to come and learn. And, and that was my message is I know what it takes to run a successful startup company. I know what it takes to work within large organizations. I love investing. I love startups. And I wanted to learn. And that was my message. And it was well received. Did you seek them out or did they find you? Had you done a big search of everything in venture capital or in investing to try to find something? I wanted to learn. And, and it's not like I was out looking for a job. I was trying to figure out where I fit into this world and, and what I could do to, to add value to somebody's team and just talking to people and understanding, hey, this is what venture capital is all about. And uh, do my skill sets line up here? And okay, maybe I should talk to another person and, and learn from them and, and talk to them about their experience. And the more that you seek out people that have information that can help you, I think the more you'll learn about what you're trying to do and about who you are and, and where you fit in. And, and so having those conversations, it's all they are. Just have conversations and, and learn from folks that, that have been there and, and see where it takes you. If the idea is I want to end up in the sexy industry because you get paid well and people treat you like you're important, then maybe you'll have the connections to make that happen, but you won't be as successful as you would be if the stance was, my job is to bring value. My job is to bring value to Stanley. My job is to bring value to the investments we make. That's what will make me successful. That's what will make the deal successful. The rest of it will take care of itself. If I'm building a company, my job is not to have a big exit where I make a bunch of money. My job is to create value in the world and capture as much of that value as possible. And the rest of it will take care of itself. I equate that to some of the startups we talked to today. You can tell the ones that have done the research on Stanley and have an understanding of what it is we do and how we might work together versus the one that just come in and um, not necessarily prepared, but they're ready to talk about themselves. But, but they forget to even ask 
about <laughs> how we could work together. And right. so certainly from the entrepreneur's perspective, understanding who it is you're speaking to and why that's a valuable conversation to begin with and why it's valuable for them and how you might be able to help each other. Those are important things to just spend a little time on before you step into the room because otherwise it, it feels very one-sided and you don't get the reciprocal value out of it that, that people are both there to, to get. All right. So let's walk through one specific deal. So I, I think I've got an interesting story here that it's actually about a startup that we said no to mm. um, a few times Good. and ended up doing a deal with. Probably two, maybe three years ago, we had a group internally that was working on innovation and construction and digital construction and things like that. And we had a path that we were going down from a product perspective. And there was this startup out there who was doing stuff in the digital construction space, but wasn't really aligned with us. But it was a great company. It was a great CEO. It's a great team. And we loved what they were doing. And we loved the direction they were going in. It was a different direction from us, but it was in a space where we knew we needed to have some footprint in order to be successful in digital construction. We tried to put a deal together. We tried to do something that worked for both sides. And eventually we got to the point where it was like, look, where we're at and where you're at right now, we're not going to be adding value to, you, to either one. And, mm. and it just doesn't make sense to try and force this. So we put everything on pause, but you know, mm. I kept in touch with that company over the, you know, the past few years because again, they're a great company, great entrepreneur, great team. Great company, great team. In what ways? What made it great? First of all, the CEO comes from the industry and started this company because he saw a need, he saw a problem with no solution, and he decided to go solve it. My favorite kind of entrepreneur. They've got the industry knowledge. They've been there to understand why it's a problem. And then they actually have the intestinal fortitude to go out <laughs> and start a business and try and solve that problem and try and create something that people will buy. Secondly, they had a great team I knew this because they were executing. They were actually delivering things. So many times we come across teams that never actually get something into production. They didn't have a great team in that there was a great team slide with a bunch of great backgrounds. It was a great team because they, deli they, the they delivered. They delivered. That's exactly right. And at Stanley, that's what we do. We don't sit around and, and have meetings all day. People actually go and produce prototypes and they take them to the field and they try and beat the crap out of the, the, the next greatest power drill and see when it <laughs> fails that we can learn from that and make a better product that's actually going to launch for our production. The team they had was executing and they were producing and they were meeting timelines and they were producing a quality product. That, that mattered so much to me. I said, this is a good CEO with background and a great team that's delivering. You can't ask for much more than that. Okay, but no deal. So you keep talking to them for years. What ends up being the lever? They just kept doing what they were doing. When it finally came time, where we found that alignment, 
it was an easy sell internally. It was we've been following these guys for three years and they've done everything they said they were going to do mm-hmm. and they've delivered a quality product. Uh, a different group within our tools business ended up having a commercial initiative that could very strongly complement the tool set that this startup had produced. All of a sudden it was, hey, we need a partner and we've got a digital solution and we just need someone to partner with that's going to add value to our product and that's going to add value to their product. And it happened to be a perfect match. It was so easy to get buy-in from upper management and leadership because the strategic alignment was there and it was a good company with a good team and a great CEO. What happened with them during those years? Did they raise money elsewhere? Were you in competition with any others? What, what happened during that intervening time for them? They raised some smaller, I want to say like convertible note, and, and they used it to continue to build out their product. When I mm-hmm. first met them, they had one application. Mm-hmm. And then by year three, they had not only three applications, but a full platform. You could just tell they've continued to execute. They were able to raise some money and they put the money to good work and it got them to where they were when we finally re-engaged. So yeah, they, they yeah. were able to do what they needed to do. And uh, you know, I've definitely been saying it now in this COVID world we're living in, but I'll say it again in general, good companies will raise money. That will not be a problem. And whenever entrepreneurs ask me, what do I need to do to go raise money? I always say, go run your business, go execute, go produce stuff, make something that people can see and touch and feel and use, go do that. And then investors will have something to invest in. Yeah. I think there's this misconception about FOMO and the investment community. There are certainly some circumstances and they probably sometimes are the most high profile where there's some kind of trend or some kind of heat. And so it causes some folks to say, we got to do this even if we're not sure, just because this is a chance to do this thing that's happening now. And so we need to do it. But the vast majority of the time, the actual best FOMO creation is what you just described, not some ginning up some feeling inside the investor that they're going to miss out on something mystical. It's running a great business that's doing really well, that's going to do really well, whether or not that investor is involved. And that's not bravado. We know what we're doing and this is going to happen either way. And we'd love to do it along with you. The best startups actually end up choosing their investors. And I know that's a backward looking concept, but that's truly what it is. The best startups don't have a problem raising money. The problem they have is figuring out what's their investor base that they could take from everyone who's interested that's going to add the most value to the startup. And they look at their investors as assets instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. And, and they get to pick having these three investors, whether it's a, an individual with great network in the space or a strategic investor that can add value through all different ways or a traditional VC that has grown startups to great exits in this industry or market, putting something like that together, that's a huge asset for you as a startup. And the good ones, the good startups get to do that. They, they mm-hmm. get to choose who the investors are in their company. That's the kind of startup you want to be. Then you are all the while steering the direction of your company and, and you're creating value by not just raising money, but bringing in the right type of people 
and the right type of resources to help continue to grow your, your business. So tell me something about this particular deal that is not replicable, that, that is very specific, was specific to them, that there's not a tactic you can take out of it. There's not some strategy you could pursue. What sort of falls into the luck category? I will definitely say that the timing of their raise and the timing of our you know, need to find an external partner is, again, just very lucky. And that's not always something you can find. And it's right. not something you can plan for. And, and I go back to if you run your company and not worry about who might invest and what you, know, you need to do to get them on board to invest, if you just run your company, good things will happen. And if it wasn't us, I'm sure it would have been somebody else. I think if you're an entrepreneur, you need to go and solve a real problem that has a real market. And if you do that, there will be people that are looking to partner with you. And, and you'll be able to find those investors. What is something that you have never said to them, but you should? Spend more money. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing so well that, it's, okay, how can we go faster? How can we go bigger? One of our portfolio companies, a different one, I was having a conversation with the CEO, and we were talking about what the next three to five years look like. Mm-hmm. And CEO put together a plan and reviewed it at the board level. And I looked at it and said, you're going to hit all these numbers. You're going to hit every single one of these numbers. She was like, yeah, that's great. We said, no, I want you to put an aggressive plan together (laughs) that we're questioning whether or not we can do it, but it's the growth trajectory that we love to get to. And and then the question becomes, how do we get there? Can we actually put a plan together and a strategy that helps us achieve that plan? I know you're going to do what you're going to do because you've proven that you can execute. I don't need to see those numbers. I already know what those are. Show me yeah. what is going to be hard for us to accomplish and let's see if we can actually make it happen. What's your due diligence process like? How detailed it is? I, I feel like I've talked to a lot of folks who haven't gone through one of those processes yet, who don't quite understand what's expected of them. And tell me if you've ever killed anything during due diligence. The short answer is yes. And that can happen for all different kinds of reasons. But diligence at Stanley, at least, diligence is the process we go through to get a deal done, Mm -hmm. not to stop a deal from happening. Mm. And we may find that, hey, you don't have the proper insurance you need to be operating the business you're running. Okay, let's talk about that and let's figure out how to protect yourself so that when we go out and we completely crush the market together, Mm -hmm. that you have to protect you. We use a, a fairly large team. I'd say it's probably 10, 12 folks from our corporate group in all different areas, finance, accounting, tax, HR, real estate, all these areas, and, and experts in each. And they go through and they give us a fair assessment of, do they, do they see anything that's a red flag? And, and if so, well, what are some things we could do to mitigate those risks? And we, we work with the startup on it and we get the deal to a place where we're comfortable moving forward. And, and, and it's a pretty straightforward process. I think that startups can be intimidated because we've got so many people uh, on the diligence team and you know, they do get a lot of questions mm-hmm. when, you, when you couch it to them as, hey, this is about getting a deal done. How we ensure that we're all in a good place when we sign these documents, not just Stanley and not just us feeling good about it, 
but you and understanding you're about to embark on a pretty wild, crazy journey with a large company. And hopefully we both see a lot of growth out of this. You know, that's what we're trying to prepare for here. We have called things off in diligence before. It can be all different kinds of things. It could be a business case that we made some assumptions around. And once we learned more about the company, we found that some of those assumptions didn't hold water. Um, right. It could be stuff around IP. The startup wants to take IP to our competitors that we mm-hmm. help them develop. And there's all different kinds of scenarios we've seen. But I would say the vast majority, probably 90th plus percentile of deals that are in diligence go through. Getting them to diligence is a different story. That's right. all about getting an agreement in principle on what we're going to do together. That's really the toughest part. You just don't want... If you have said things during that process of getting to diligence that aren't true, aren't going to hold up to some investigation, it's going to be found out. It's just not worth doing. One of the best pieces of advice I got, which is very intuitive, is never lie. And uh, that'll take you a long ways. If you can just never lie, then you're in a good place. And look, if there are things that are material and adverse maybe some skeletons in the closet or something, you should just talk to your investor about them because they're going to find out one way or another. And it's better Mm -hmm. if they find out from you. And if you've got a situation and the investor is not comfortable with it, you might as well tell them up front and not waste everyone's time and money. Like I said, Hey, we're trying to find ways to get deals done. And so if, if an investor is passionate about what you're doing, and, you know, your issue isn't a felony or something, and there's something you, you need to work around. Maybe you had a, a bad founder divorce or something like that, and mm-hmm. there's something weird with the cap table or whatever. We've seen that come up. Let's just figure out what the situation is, and we'll find a path forward. It's better when those things come out and they say, we talked about this. Here's where you find it in the data room. That's a much better conversation to have than, Hey, guess what we found in the data room? Any final advice to someone who wants to be in the industry or uh, companies looking for money in general or somebody that might want to approach you or Stanley? I I think it goes, first of all, with what are you passionate about? I wasn't particularly like a a tool guy when I joined Stanley, but I've got a a physics background and I, I love the things that go into how our tools are made and why they're made and what they're made for. I love all that stuff. And I've gotten better at being handy around the house as a result of working here and and having awesome DeWalt tools. But I knew that I was going to enjoy looking at motors and batteries and stuff like that all the time, just because of what I like and what I'm good at. Remember, you're going to be looking at very interesting, forward-thinking technologies, but looking at them through the lens of the entity that you work for. Find what your passion is and make sure that you're at least trying to align that with a a company that shares some of those things because that's really going to be the the main focus of what you do. It's not easy to have a job that you love and that you want to look up and go to every day. I have the the, the benefit of of having a job like that and I I don't take it for granted, but a lot of it is putting up the work up front to understand who you are, what you're good at, and and what kind of company you'd like to work for, and then doing everything you can to learn about it. And if you can do those things, hopefully you'll have some success. Talk about how important collaboration is in general within the industry. I think it's extremely important 
that you get to know other venture capitalists, both in your region as well as in complementary industries, because you're talking about private companies here, but there's not a lot of information about them. Deal flow really comes from other good investors who have a pulse on the market and the industry and the entrepreneurs that are working on them. And so it's, it's very difficult to find companies in your space and in your technology area without meeting people that are looking in kind of similar spaces. Obviously, you don't want to work with competitors, but knowing folks who, for example, invest into IoT, if we were looking at a new sensor we needed or something, I know who to go talk to within my network that invests in IoT and are seeing the best IoT deals that are coming up. It's very important to find those companies and, and having a good network is extremely important. And then sharing good deals is very important. Again, if I had an IoT deal and we had room in the round, I'd be outreaching to those other VCs and saying, this is a great company. We're going to do great things with them. Want to make sure they're on your radar. And if you're interested, I'm happy to help out. Because of the private nature of everything, you need to have a good network and you need to meet other VCs and understand what their interests are just as much as you need to help them understand what your interests are. And that's how no deal flow happens and that's how you build out a good network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Mike Mahan. Thank you to Pixel Recess. Please subscribe on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts and we'll see you next time.